1984, Joe Deaver released the first of the Lone Wolf game books, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamite in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back, and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys Through Magnamon podcast. Welcome back to Journeys Through Magnamon, the official Lone Wolf podcast. I am Jonathan, known as Zip sometimes in the community. And I'm August Hahn. And today we are going to be jumping into the first of the Magnakai series. This book is Kingdoms of Terror. And this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of information in this podcast uh, for both new, new readers and fans alike, because this book is really the, the expansion of the lone wolf world. It, it, it takes this, it takes you from, you know, this corner that you've sort of been experiencing and everything being tied right to Summerland politics and the Kai Monastery and all the events with the Dark Lords and, and, and you know, everything was very kind of set. Now we expand our scope and we find out that this is a whole world with people who aren't even thinking about the Kai Lords or Summerland. They have their own politics going on, their own lives to live. Oh, yes, absolutely. This is the first book that really takes you, uh, the corner of Magnamund's a really good way to put that. Uh, it takes you out of the directly Summerland-related stuff and plunges you into a, a different culture, a different part of the world, and definitely larger plots. And that's going to be a theme throughout the Magnakai series. Each one, of course, centered around this hunt for a specific lore stone in a different corner of the world, different part of Magnamund. So the one we're talking about today, um, this is the Lorestone of Veretta. Now, do we know uh, what Sun Eagle's trial to get this particular Lorestone was? Well, he didn't have to fight a Dakamid, I can, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, no, the Lorestones weren't, weren't in Takaro at the time that he learned about them. Um, most of the background for, uh, for Sun Eagle's part of the quest is revealed in later game books. So some of that would be a spoiler. J just to say that he did definitely have his own quests and tri and tribulations to go through. Do we at least know how this lore stone got to Veretta after uh after Sun Eagle's time? Uh yes. Yeah, after Sun Eagle reco recovered it, it was set into the throne of Lyris. Uh, that was in the Tower of the King there in Veretta, but it got stolen later by one of the princes, uh Prince Cascor of Saladin. And when it was set in the throne, was that something the Kai lords did as as like a symbol of, you know, peace between the lands or what was that? Uh, effectively, yes. It was a sign between that nation and the Kai lords of both Kai's favor, uh, his preference for that particular royal line, and as a symbol of friendship. Now, there's a legend that surrounds this lore stone that whomever recovers it will become king of the Stornland. How did this legend get started? Uh, well, all right. So the, the legend that got started, like a lot of legends even in our world, it, it got started as kind of a very self-serving story. Uh, there's no guarantee that anybody who gets the stone becomes king. But of course, the fact that it imbues powers, it has a great deal of personal energy, it certainly makes becoming king a whole lot easier. 
Got it. Okay, so if Lo- if Lone Wolf recovers this lore stone, then he's not king of the Stormlands. Right, exactly. It's a bit like the legends of say a coronation stone where where you know if if you if you kneel on the rock you become king. Sadly, it it doesn't really work that way. And and, and Lone Wolf and Lone Wolf wouldn't need the political complications anyway. <laughs> no, no. You know, although it would make an interesting uh an interesting book, an interesting adventure. Just sit there and and do politics for 350 sections. Right, right. I mean, even, you know, Prince Cascor believed some of the legends as well, right? He believed that it would make him invulnerable. But when he was killed on his barge, that was proven not to be so. And and after he was killed, that's that's when the lore stone fell into the river, kind of Lord of the Rings style. Yeah, it, it fell into the river storm and was later then recovered. Got it. And then... Uh, but it was kept in secret after that. Uh, for the most part, it was it was definitely attempted to keep, keep be kept secret. Uh, rumors did, however, spread quickly. It, it's kind of hard to keep a, a large glowing crystal a secret. And who was the last kind of if we know who was the last person to have it that actually decided it's going to be here in Takaro? Uh, Larmand, a, a different another prince, uh, the grand prince, actually, uh, of Suntina wanted to obtain it and was able, he wanted to try to force the rulers of Lyris to pay a huge tribute for it. Uh, unfortunately, the, the people who had the secret, they ended up dying. The artifact was hidden and eventually it made its way to Castle Tonor. Again, kind of a larger story and it's revealed elsewhere. That's fascinating. And we'll talk about a little bit about Castle Tarnor later on. Yes. Wow. So this, you know, this is how things end up on the Antique Roadshow. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I think I think what you've got there is a lore stone. <laughs> that particular lore stone was the lore stone of Veretta. I, I got a caller on the line willing to give you five hundred gold coins for it right now. Says his name is Landar. Landar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that it it has a storied history, but all of the lore stones have a storied history. The courtyard of the Kai Monastery is strangely silent the morning you begin the quest. A blanket of frost sparkles on the battlements and the air is crisp and clear. It is only a little later that you look back and see the tall grey towers of your stronghold silhouetted against the sky. You bid a silent farewell before entering the densely packed trees. You do not look back again. So we said that the Stormlands have really their own thing going on, and we can learn a lot about this just by looking at all the various groups and people you meet along the way in your journey. Uh, so maybe to start us off, mercenaries, right? I mean, mercenaries are everywhere. Why all the mercenaries in the Stormlands? Well, the history of mercenary companies in the Stormlands is, is ancient. It goes back before the War of the Lore Stones themselves. Uh, when the Stormlands were nearly annihilated, when the Mackin Gorge opened in uh, MS 3055, the immediate impacts were vast. Uh, most of the cities that were along the Mackin Gorge, or even hundreds of miles away, were either devastated or at least badly damaged. That destabilized all of their politics, all of their power structures, and it was the perfect breeding ground for mercenary companies to come in and make a name for themselves. So when this destabilized things, did it literally split a large kingdom into many small kingdoms? 
In some places, yes. And in other places, it just, you know, a, a single nation might have gotten split into two rival factions. What it really did was just allow all of the political tensions that were occurring uh, on both sides of the gorge, honestly, uh, to, to flare up again. Uh, old, old arguments flared up, old, like, uh, ancillary families to the royal line suddenly started to, to vie for the throne again. It was a time of, of massive instability. And is there anything that could ever actually put a stop to this fighting? I mean, you say that all these different nations are against each other. We get we get hints of this in the book, or, or actually explicitly stated. I mean, at one point they say Lyris is against Magador, Deldon is against Salony, Salony hates Slovia, and it sounds like these go back and back and back. So, is there any way to end this, or is this going to be forever? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of these political tensions do get quelled in a really bad way. Uh, but that comes in later with The Rise of the Dark Lords. And that's a different book. Let's talk about dark influences for a minute, because that's another group you, you find hiding out here. The Acolytes of Vashna, our old buddies from book four. You know, the uh, the chasm of doom trying to rise up those dead dark lords. Don't rise up those dead dark lords. What are they doing here? Uh, well, for the most part, they're spread all throughout the Last Lands. Uh, Vasa, uh, all through the Stormlands, simply because it was a rife area for them to, to come in, grab power, and stay hidden. Uh, oh, 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 okay. So they, they, so book four isn't the beginning of the Acolytes of Vashna. Oh, no. They uh, have an extremely long history. It goes back uh, all the way to Vashna's defeat. So that is just a shadow reaching out. And now we're coming into, we're meeting the the more, the older, more infested <laughs> right. parts. See, the, okay. the, the great thing about chaos, if you're an evil cult, is chaos makes it hard to find you. So the, the, all of the displacement that occurs in the Last Lands and in this area just makes it much easier for them to hide. Well, and, and this... Uh, this kind of brings us into one of my favorite villains in the entire series, and that is Roark of Amory. Uh, and I think what I love about this guy is he is just, well, you think at first that he's just this petulant lordly, and, and he's just so easy to hate. He's just an easy, like, normal villain to hate. But we soon kind of learn there's more to this guy. So, so what, is, what is his history? Well, we do learn quite a bit about him, but not in this book per se. Uh, there's a, there's a, you, we learn a great deal more about him in, in book 10. So just, just how much of a spoiler do we want here? Well, let me ask this. Do we ever learn more about his sister, Arla? Because she is somebody you don't even have to meet in this book. Uh, and it was a surprise to me to learn she existed, you know, when I, I mean, I learned this years ago, choosing some different paths. But when I found her for the first time, I went, whoa, I never knew she was around. Uh, we don't get very many specifics of her ever, honestly. Uh, although she does have not quite as rich a history as Roark, just because Roark was the focus of this book and, and to some extent, 10. Uh, however, yes, she absolutely exists. And you, while you don't get to meet her, it's interesting if you do. And and is she? very aware of what Roark is up to? Uh, yes. Yes. She, she absolutely understands what's happening here. And in fact, helps Roark at a couple of different points. One thing I will ask about Roark, just to kind of, 
I will save a lot for him for book 10, I think. But one thing I want to ask is he does try at one point this summoning and it doesn't go right. And I've always just been curious what actually went wrong with the summoning. Well, doesn't go right might be one of the one of the biggest uh, understatements ever in this podcast. Yeah, it it goes really badly. Um, but that's what happens when you try to call up something that you can't control. And that's the basics, I guess. He just he does succeed, but it, it, he can't control it. Yeah, absolutely. He, and okay, the, in a sense. That's his own mistake for one, overestimating his power, and two, not realizing that the ritual he performs was never intended to control it. You know, but again, that's what I love about Rorark. And actually, a lot of the characters in this book is that they feel a little more normal than some of the characters we've met so far. Like they they have limits, both the villains to their power. Uh, and and the heroes are or like not the heroes, but the the friendlies, we'll call them. Like one of the um, companions you get in this in this book is probably my favorite in the entire series, and that is Cyrilus. Yeah, Cyr- um, yeah, Cyrilus is uh, is an interesting individual. Well, I I love him because he's so normal. He's just this. He he's not a warrior or a magician. He's kind of. I mean, he's just kind of this guy, this traveler who really is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, he is and he isn't, and that's the interesting part, is that, yes, he seems like an absolutely normal person, and to an extent he is, but even he has a deeper and richer backstory. Um, he's a Oh, ma- I would love to hear about that. Well, it's based in the bonus adventure for, for Lone Wolves, uh, for this book, and- Oh. While I don't want to give spoilers out there either- uh, one, I will note that we will be compiling the bonus adventures into books that will become commercially available, probably beginning in 2024. So that's great because I, I was one of those fans who never got to really play uh, many of the bonus adventures, just just a few here and there, and then the later ones that were easier to get through um, Home Guard Press when they did the the collector's editions. But yeah, didn't know this existed. One for where you actually learn about him. Well, I'm trying to think what could you give us a snippet? Any uh, sure. snippet? Absolutely. Um, Cerulus is a member of a group called the Nameless Order. And in fact, he's one of its founders. They're, they're dedicated to the transformation of the Stormlands. Everything that you were talking about, bringing peace back to the Stormland, reuniting the lands, ending a lot of this internecine fighting. Uh, that's one of their ultimate goals. So Cyrilus isn't just sort of a normal, nameless plebe in the wrong place. He's where he needs to be for what he needs to do. Just a few more questions about the Storylands. Again, just highlighting the vast, well, the vastness of the world here. Uh, there's a couple little things that are thrown out. Like there's this, this mention of the Shrine of the Warrior. Uh, in, is this something that has a bigger history or is this just a one-time mention? All right. Well, the Shrine of the Warrior does have a, a larger amount of information published in it in a source book called Stormlands, uh, which was for one of the role-playing games. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because those are hard to get. Some of those, some of those stor- source books. A religious sorority constructed the Shrine of the Warrior, and the reason that it's built where it is, uh, it was because they had a foretelling uh, that a mighty Majan. A, basically a, a Shianti warrior. We've talked about the Shianti before. And the Majans, yeah. Yes, exactly. 
um, that he stood alone against a gigantic horde of the undead at that spot. Ah. It was one of the greatest conflicts in the golden age of the Shianti. Oh, fascinating. I love that. Okay, that's great. And the ground, the grounds around the Shrine of the Warrior uh, are where uh, huge bushes of Aletheir berries. I was going to say, so there is actually some, uh, this isn't just a legend. This actually has a physical effect on the, on the earth. It, it does, because at least by the beliefs of the, of the sorority that founded the shrine, it is the benevolent power of that uh, Shianti warrior that both feeds and causes the Aletheir berries to grow there in such variety. Either that or really good soil. We, just, know, we don't know, but it's probably both. You know, Shianti, they make great fertilizer. Who knows? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Because he he didn't make it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, because unfortunately, yes, that's, that's kind of what makes one of those great heroic battles is the fall at the end. Well, last question then from these these little uh, these little highlights. Sure. We've sure. got Castle Tonner. Now, you mentioned that back in the intro. Uh, you can actually visit there, and I was curious. I, I first I didn't know that it had a deeper history, but I also don't think you ever see this place again outside of this book. Is that is that right? Uh, no, Lone Wolf never revisits it. At least not in the the stories told in these books. No, but it does seem to have some significance. So I wondered if you'd share what that is. Well, I can tell you a little bit about it. And again, some of this is spoilers for other materials, but what I can tell you is that the, the it was built in MS-4402 by Prince Leiden, and it was, at one point, it was just the, the rulership seat of a small principality that's now part of Lyris. It wasn't at the time. Okay. Uh, as you can see, uh, if you look at the map that's in the book, uh, you'll note that the area was once Winogen. It's just a forest and a plains. And it's bordered on one side by the River Quarrel and on the other side by a massive highway. Okay. Now, the river had a tributary that ran beneath the castle. The, the water ended up coming up under the castle and flowing past an ancient altar, mm. which causes the healing properties of something called Tawnor water. Oh, okay. And that made the area extremely famous, which, unfortunately, especially in Magdemund, extremely famous also means draws attack. Wow. So there is an artifact somewhere underneath the earth that this water is being purified by. Yes. And, and it provided, at the time, it provided uh, massive healing properties. Tonar water became famous throughout the, star the Stormlands, which unfortunately means that there were a number of wars fought over control of it. Because that's how that's how people do in Magdamut. Well, and and how people do when you have life giving water. I can. So that was the downfall. So it, a life giving water led to, in some ways, death giving consequences. Uh, that's a, that's definitely a way to look at it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the castle did not fall to these battles. Oh, uh, after about two hundred years for of, of flowing, the water just dried up. And there, there were legends about that, that, you know, Ishir giveth, Ishir taketh away. Um, she certainly would not have approved of what was happening because of the water, that's for sure. Yet when the spring dried up, the castle just fell into disrepair. There was no need to battle around it, and it was nowhere near a, a solid tactical point. So the castle just fell apart. Got it. And the people who were uh, in control of that castle, you said they, they just kind of retreated to Lyris. 
yes, it was abandoned after okay. a while. Uh, the main watchtower was rebuilt for a while by the use of, of Lyris's army. But even it was then abandoned once the Denka Gate was built. And we might not know this, but did this lead to the downfall of any kind of major power in in Lyris? Like, was there a, a a ruler of this castle, a family who then fell on hard times, or or do we just not know? I. Uh, you simply don't know. Honestly, the the castle didn't really spawn any great royal dynasties. It was always mostly just a freehold. You know, I love this, though. I mean, in just these questions, I hope that listeners have been able to see. I mean, one of the amazing things about this podcast uh, has, as a fan of Lone Wolf myself has been, you know, I ask these questions. and I always expect I'm going to ask and we're just going to get the answer. Ah, No, that was never developed or we don't know. I never get that answer. Uh, it's always no, it's all developed somewhere and deeply developed. I mean, it feels like these are, you know, if this was Dungeons and Dragons, these could all be, you know, their own campaign modules that we're talking about here. And yet they are just blips in the game book series. So it, oh, certainly like like the basement for Castle Tonor. It's a dungeon. And uh, and that's the important part in this book, actually, because <laughs> something really nasty lives down there. But no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the The fact that these little things that would just be dots on some map, they are fully fleshed out. Any one of these could be its own campaign. Cyrilus offers to stay and look after the horses while you take part in the contest. He says that archery holds no interest for him, but you suspect this is just an excuse to take an afternoon nap. You hand him the reins of your horse and hurry to join a line of people waiting to enter the tournament field. We don't usually talk about special items too much, and and there's been some cool ones. Maybe we'll do a, an item-specific episode one day to talk about uh, them all. I know what we're about to talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, we can't get away with not talking about That's it. the thing. I mean, of all the items that you can get throughout the books up to this point, not notwithstanding the summer sword, of course, but I think there is one that just you people bring up again and again and it is in this book and that is the silver bow of Duodon. The silver bow of Duodon. And I'll say this, you might think you're in this book for the Lore Stone of Veretta, but no, you're here for the Silver Bow of Duodon. <laughs> well, you, you are and you aren't, but but we will talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about this in, in, in some depth here. And I, and I want to start by talking about just getting to the to the bow. So it, it is it is a tournament, an archery tournament. And I love this tournament. It's such a great just scene. Again, it 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 it, it extends that sense of normalcy throughout Magnamund, because it's a tournament. It's an archery tournament. Do you want to join? But one thing that's always struck me about it is it does kind of unfortunately cut off the exploration of other paths uh, for most it people. It does. It does. That, because that's how a lot of choices in Lone Wolf work. You can You can focus on one spot, and you can have an interesting adventure there. But stuff is happening around you, and if you don't go somewhere else, then you miss what happens there. And and I think unusual uh, for other parts in the book, this is one where rather than being given a choice, like you could go to Castle Tonner or you could go to this place here or you could go to the archery, you're kind of traveling and the archery comes up first. And I I think 
there will be very few players, at least on their first time. This is a good reason to replay the book. But on your first time, there's very few players who will not say, I'm going to I'm going to skip the archery tournament. I think most players are going to go check it out. They yes, that is absolutely true. I think the only reason like personally, when I first went through this, I was I was young, uh, very young, uh, but I always had this sense of, of impetus. Lone Wolf is always this driven character. Urgency, urgency. Uh, yeah, Got almost it, yeah. everything that he does is on a time limit. At least you feel that way. And I really felt that as a kid because I often had lots of pressing things that I had to do. So I missed the archery tournament because it felt to me like a distraction. It's so great to hear about other people's experiences with the books. I love that because I was so different. For me, like <laughs> Kingdoms of Terror, I felt like, well, I've, I've killed it. Dark Lord Hakon. I've killed Dark Lord Zagarna. I've got time. Like This was my vacation. This was my sabbatical. I was doing research, kind of, but I was really just you know having a vacation in the Stormlands. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you can, because of the way the text is written, you can take it either direction and both are valid. So, so at, the other reason I think most people will once they, you know, they'll miss these other paths is because once you do realize this is where you can get this amazing bow, I mean, it's one of the best items, arguably, in the entire first 20 books is this bow. It's so useful. It, 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 it is certainly one of the most memorable. That, that I will say. Now, it's not easy to win. Um, it, it, it is not, and that was intentional. But again, we'll get to that. Yeah, let's talk, I guess, about the bow itself first. So, so what gives it its properties? Is it magical? It is not magical. Uh, the silver bow of Duodon is, it is extremely high quality. In fact, it may be one of the, the most masterfully made bows on the planet. Uh, it is, it's called silver because it comes from silver oak wood that comes from the Eldenora forest. Uh, that's where it's made. That's where master, uh, bow makers, master fletchers, uh, have put together just this incredible weapon. And it is an absolute prize. It is not, it is not unique, but it is possibly of the bows of its quality the best. And and Duodon that it's named for the silver bow of Duodon is that a person a place? Uh, no, it, it, well, it's a place. Yes, and the bowmaker shop, the bowmaker who makes the the weapon, uh, it, it's called the shop's called the Silver Bowyer, and it's in Duodon. Can you can you visit this in another book? Uh, no, this is in the source book from the Stormlands. Got it. Okay, okay. And so you said it's it's not one of a kind, but it's very very rare. Uh, yes, well, the silver bow of Duodon is in in the sense of that naming, it is unique. It's just it's not it's not entirely a unique style. It's just the best of the best. All right, so everybody's here, and one of those people that is here is this guy named Alton. Uh, and right, he's talk. He he's. I think it's mentioned he's a ranger. Is that is that a border ranger? Yeah, he's a Laurasian border ranger. Um, most of the, most of the civilized kingdoms in Magnamund employ border rangers and they are modeled after the Sumlending border rangers. Got it. And, and one of the reasons I asked is because I remember the Sumlending border rangers are like, you know, we're potential Kai lords, but I'm guessing that's not the case for 
for Alton. No, no. Though just about every nation that has border rangers does, they, they do treat them like uh, special forces. They are, again, we said best of the best earlier. They are the best of the best. They are their right. archers, their scouts, their trackers, and they patrol the borders of each of these nations. Yeah, I think we, we, we had maybe... Maybe we've called them kind of green berets in the past, a little jokingly. I think that L- little bit, little that, bit that kind of holds. I think here, okay. Yeah, it does. It does. They're they're the special forces for their particular nation. So, do we know much about him outside of that? You know, that he's part of that kind of prestigious elite group. Uh, no, no, you don't learn much about him directly in this book, and and even in the peripheral things, like the Lorestone of Veretta uh, book from Legends of Lone Wolf, doesn't describe him too much, uh, just that Cyrillus knows him. Well, depending on your choices in this book, he could walk off of your summer sword. <laughs> yes, but you'd have to make a really bad choice. <laughs> like a phenomenally bad choice. Overall, he doesn't. He seems like a good guy. Oh, he is. He, after all, he he is a border ranger. He's a hero of Lyris. Now, the the one last question I want to ask here, because I know I know I would be remiss if I don't. Fans are going to ask about it. You know, there's so many ways that people try to build up um, their combat score before this archery tournament, and there's been lots of of kind of. Half comical, half serious method suggested of what you can and cannot use. So let's run down some of them just real quick and give me the give me the true or false. Like, is it legal or not legal? <laughs> OK, well, I mean, the answer is going to be fairly simple, but go ahead. I'm guessing Alather is totally legal. You can drug yourself. You can juice before the before uh, the tournament. If you want to use uh, performance enhancing substances. Yes. OK, great. And then uh, I'm guessing psychic is is totally viable because no one would know. That again, absolutely. I'm guessing it, it, it's it's within the rules. Yes, I'm guessing shining the light off your shield to blind Alton is not legal. Ah, <laughs> uh, if it's a if it's a numerical advantage that you can technically apply, uh, of course, the fact that technically speaking, you shouldn't have a shield equipped while using a bow. Okay, so shields are out for that reason. Uh, right. I would say so. There's no specific rule, but yes, absolutely. But your, uh, but your helm, your silver helm, no such. You can use that. I, absolutely, if that's what you want to do. Okay, I think those were the big ones. Is there any? Is there any uh, you you've heard of that I'm missing? Uh, I have. I have heard a few people saying that that they they have thought. What if they? What if they pull the summer sword out just a little bit, and the, <laughs> and the light of the sun. <laughs> And they accidentally just blast Alton's <laughs> target, yeah. and so he's just, just disqualified. Just a, it's like super bright, and yeah, uh, I've I've heard a, I've heard a lot of them. But I can sum up as saying this: there is a reason why Joe didn't put any restrictions in, and that is, and we've had this conversation before, because the silver bow of Duodun is was written by Joe as one of his morality tests. Okay, interesting. Good talk about that a little bit. It, effectively, you do not need that. I, I know this is really going to upset some fans. You do not need the silver bow of Duoden. You don't. You don't need it. It is never absolutely vital. It is never. I mean, there there is a battle later where it makes things a whole lot simpler. 
but you do not require it. I mean, you don't you even never... need to use arrows, uh, bows and arrows in the entire series. You can choose not to. Bows are not uh, are not required uh, really at any point. They they certainly help in several sections, and very specifically, the silver bow of Duodun, much later in the series, is useful. It allows you to it allows you to cut a very difficult battle very short. And when we get to that book, we'll certainly talk about that. But you don't need it. And in fact, Alton is so good and is a dedicated, uh, he's a dedicated archer. He's a dedicated ranger. He's going to stay in the area and use the bow to help protect it. And effectively, the only way you as Lone Wolf have much of a shot at all of getting the bow is to cheat. Got it. Got it. So these built-in morality tests, they're they're not they they don't actually tie to any sort of later uh choice or gimmick or where the book checks in with you to say, well, you did bad by getting it. Like, like no, having the no, silver bow doesn't screw over all the last lands in a later book. Right. It, it, just like the fire sphere, you're never penalized. But it puts you in the as the player in the position of having to actually engage with a moral decision. Precisely. It, it, there's never a punishment aside from, and I've actually seen it with Joe, aside from Joe casting a bit of a glance at you when you brag about your silver bow of duodon. Okay. So all those, so all of us who, who posted on Facebook for all these years, <laughs> Joe, Joe had our names. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. He had a little book like, all right, I definitely don't trust him with my wallet. Click. <laughs> Maybe that's why he signed my storms of chai with a frowny face. I just. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. You, you never know. But yes, it, 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 it was really just a, it was a chance to put morale in the book there's never a penalty there's no real bonus for cheating because again you don't need the bow it does look really sexy on my back though next to the summer sword and and that fire sphere that i stabbed those uh barbarians in the back for absolutely so. <laughs> you got congratulations you cheat you cheated the hero and murdered two old men proud on you <laughs> It is late afternoon when you catch your first breathtaking glimpse of Veretta. Built on a massive plateau, this city has stood since time immemorial. The walls and buildings are immense, constructed from blood-red rock and crowded together in complicated splendor. Great stone dragons writhe along the battlements, their coiled tails entangling the gatehouses and portals of the outer wall, and spirals of smoke rise from the mouths of angry-faced gargoyles crouching like spies on top of the roofs and towers that fill the sky. The, the major city you visit in this book is the city of Vereda, and this is presented as a very grand, important place. Is that because it, is it the oldest in the Stormlands? Basically, what makes this place so, so important? Well, uh, Veretta itself is is made incredibly important. One because of the fact that the the city was built up over the course of a century, and, and it's made with extremely high quality stone. Uh, the plateau that surrounds it uh, is then bordered by an incredibly fertile plain. 
So not only is the city grand and took a hundred years to build, but it's also, it's in a perfect spot, both tactically, uh, agriculturally, and it becomes a shining beacon of the area because that's exactly what it is. Got it. Okay. And, and was it the oldest? Was this around before anywhere else? It is definitely the oldest of the grand cities. It is not the oldest settlement in the area. Okay. Got it. And grand city means it's on par with Torin, Home Guard. Uh, all- right. Okay. Right. A grand capital. Got it. Got it. Well, let's talk just a little bit about it. So some of the things you can find here, we'll start with uh, one that might not seem obvious. Let, let's talk about street names. So you've got some, I mean, I always love, I got to just say in all the books where you visit cities, I love Joe's street names. They're my favorite. Uh, the, oh, sure. Oh, sure. they're so great. And, and they're very evocative. Like, like some of the ones here, there's like Flute Street and Coach Course Lane. I, first of all, I love saying that. Coach course. Coach course, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I love it. And, and the great thing is, is that it's an in, immediately evocative name, too, because right. you know exactly what that lane is for. Right. I think in other books, you get things like Beggar's Lane and Shipwright's Walk and things like that. Just, yeah, like you said, evocative. And there's a clune here. There's a, there's a creature you meet called a clune. I was surprised at rereading the book. I realized it actually doesn't really give much description of what a clune is. Uh, right, right. I, in fact, I, I'm not entirely certain that the text really talks about much more than appearance. Yeah, I think it just writes small and is it, are they? Uh, yes, they're, they're smaller. They're, they're built a, a little more like a gnome than a dwarf and they're green. Which which is always something to note. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that wasn't just an accident of the of ink dying. So, no, no, the the clune the clune are in fact green. And what is a clune? Well, they're an ancient race. They're wise. They're considerate. They're extremely resourceful, and their lifestyle and their culture are all built on knowledge. They're a very erudite race. They're the librarians and scholars and bookkeepers and sages. I, I like that. I like that you have a culture. Uh, we see cultures built around many different things in Magnamon. I it's it's interesting to have one built around knowledge, although that fits Lyris and Veretta because you have probably the most important people you may, meet here are the sages of Lyris. Exactly, of whom many are Clune. Okay, and were they started by Clune? Uh, no, no. the uh, The order itself was founded. Uh, by a group of sages who called themselves the astrologers, and they were an order of mystics. Okay, okay, and that makes sense because so much of their power is based around astrological. Mm, I'd say almost shamanism. Uh, yes, it effectively take all of all of the elements of astrology and then make it a shamanic order. Right, like if horoscopes were were like really actually had magical power <laughs> that you could. Yeah, and if you could draw down the, the the mystic elements of Mars and and use its power directly as a spell. Yeah, and how powerful are they? I mean, comparatively, we've seen some orders. We've seen like the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star. We've seen Kylords, of course. Where does a sage of Lyris, like a, an actual practice sage, fit into this? Well, that depends on what you would consider power. Uh, sages of Lyris are incredibly potent advisors, and uh, if in gaming we have the concept of the support mage, 
Uh, right. That's, the, that's, that, that's a wizard who isn't flinging fireballs, but is making everybody around them better. Right. It's the one and you make your little brother play. Oh, yeah, exactly. But but if your little brother wasn't there, you probably wouldn't defeat the dragon. Fair. And that's, fair. that's exactly where the, the sages of Lyris fold in. Most of their astrology-based powers... And in fact, their their other abilities, such as the fact that they are incredibly learned and they can put a lot of their knowledge to unique uses, let's say. Uh, oh, and, and they're also all trained fencers. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that so that so they can actually defend themselves in combat too. Uh, yes, uh, some some sages of Lyris are the best real wielders of rapiers in the nation. Well, so like duelists, they're like prophet yes. duelists. Yes, the, it, it's for for many of them, it's it's just a sport and a way of getting exercise. For others, it's a lifestyle, and they are expert duelists. Well, and you wouldn't want to fight one because they would just look at you and say, "I I already know how this is going to turn out." <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there there is that. If, if they're looking confident, you've probably already lost. Now, one thing I really want to zero in on in this section because it always struck me, uh, both in this last reread I did. And all the way back to childhood. And those things that stuck with me from childhood, I, I'm always really interested in. Because, you know, as a kid, you read the text um, in a different way. I think sometimes in a more surface way. So when I felt these emotions uh, and still feel them this many years later, I go, okay, th there was something there. It really was, when you get to the sages, you have this feeling of unease. Like, like something's not right. There's a rift in the order, but you also get the sense that there's maybe like, I don't know, so, somehow danger is closing in around these sages. Is, is that, did I read that wrong? No, no. In fact, you, you didn't read that wrong. The, Joe put little seeds and hints in the text to suggest that. Uh, however, uh, to, to go any further into that would be a spoiler for book nine. Okay, we'll have to bookmark this to come back to that because I sure, it absolutely. is really interesting. Now, I did I did read and reread the details this time to just try to understand there is a rift going on. That is clear in this book. And that rift is, just to talk about that a little bit, um, that's really between people who kind of want to do the, the, the Indiana Jones Last Crusade thing and write Protect the Grail. And and then folks who <laughs> and then folks who are saying we're going to help Lone Wolf find the Lore Stone, right? And and the great thing about that particular rift is that even the way that it's written and and what is revealed later in Book Nine is that neither side is wrong. Last question about this, but the, there is a man you can meet in a tavern, and when you ask him about the sages, he gets nervous and flees. And I just had to know: is he? Art of, who is this guy? Why is he nervous? The man in question, not that you discover it in the adventure itself, but you do discover it in the bonus adventure for that book. Uh, he, that sage is one of a small conspiracy who are actually in league with the Dark Lords. Ah, okay. And and good on good on everyone who wrote a bonus adventure. Let me give them a shout out right here. Because, oh, absolutely. We have a fantastic group of authors for this. And 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 just the ideas, like the fact that they they chose these pieces to, you know, these little bits. I mean, these were people who loved, loved, loved these books uh, and clearly were digging deep because this happens in one section. <laughs> this is and it's not one you have to go through. So somebody pulled that out. 
loved loved the sense of danger and weirdness it gave as much as I did as a kid and probably many of us did and wrote a, wrote it into his story. I love that. Yes, and this story and many many others will be available to fans as soon as we can put those into books. The castle is less than a mile from the highway, yet it takes over half an hour to complete the hazardous climb to the rock shelf. The crumbling castle walls are covered with damp foliage and mildew, and the overhanging precipice envelops the keep with its gloomy shadow. You follow the sound of dripping water until you find yourself in a small chapel, where you discover a rivulet of sparkling spa water trickling from a crack in the altar stone. Okay, so moving on to really our our last bit of the journey, you have this quite wonderful um I want to call it a courtship almost <laughs> with with this <laughs> I mean he won't let you be you know he knows that that old marketing thing of just bite and don't let go this blue-eyed I mean he is blue-eyed this blue-eyed mercenary captain now we don't learn his name uh, his I, name gets revealed in the novel Lorestone of Veretta and in one of the newsletters newsletter number 8 uh, his name. Oh, okay. His name is Hal Morkarn. Tell me about this guy. Wh- who is this guy? Uh, well, he's the descendant of a really long lineage of mercenary captains, famous captains actually in the Stormlands. All right. So, 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 famous ancestry going back. You run into him, and he really, really, really wants you to join his mercenary troop. And you kind of don't have. I mean, you can. For, for a um, short period of time, you you at least travel with them. Yeah, well, I mean, you can, and and depending on how far you take that, uh, you can you can enter a battle alongside yes, them, which yes, is you do pretty incredible. But I was curious, what happens to this guy after uh, this? Does he survive the battles that that come up at Takaro? Uh, yes, and unfortunately, and and this is a spoiler. Uh, Hal Morkarn and his band of brave fighters. They do meet their end, fighting a desperate battle to defend people in the future. Okay, got it. And uh, I, I think I know maybe what you're hinting at there. So we'll save that for another podcast. He goes out a hero. That's always in the Stormlands. That's about the best you can hope for. Sometimes night has fallen by the time you reach the river town of Sorin, and the sky is clear and full of stars that sparkle with icy splendor. You ride the main street towards the quay where a score of river ships lie docked at the town. Their signal lamps, shimmering red and green from the mast tops, reflect upon the cold, dark waters of the river storm. Just to bring listeners back around to kind of our journey here, we've traveled from Summerland south to the Stormlands to the main city of Veretta, and there by River Barge, all the way to Takaro, where our journey ends. But Takaro itself is under siege. It's, it's in the midst of a battle. And I just wanted to try to understand this better, what's kind of happening. So who is fighting here and why? Well, some of the, some of the Baron Princes from Selene and Eldenora have allied themselves to pillage this city, because this is probably the most wealthy city in all of Slovia. And unfortunately, this, this is this is typical business in the Stormlands. This kind of thing happens a lot. Now, who is running Takara? Who's under siege? Uh, the the Slovians. 
they're they are defending their city and they do win this battle. Oh, they do. I was going to ask. Yeah, they managed to repel the invaders. Okay, so Takaro and and so Takaro stands after this. Yes, Takaro does not fall. You you do in a way sort of participate in part of the battle, uh, or you can depending you can. on your choices. Yeah, um, and yes, and your efforts do make a difference. Interesting. Uh, although, are you fighting in defense of it? Though I think if you join the mercenaries, you're fighting against it, right? It is, it is such a complicated matter there. Uh, none of the politics in, Storm, in the Stormlands are ever easy. Okay. So just your efforts make a difference, but in the end, the city does defend itself. You, okay, got it. So your efforts make a difference against the defenders. I, I, I was trying to put that a little more gently, but yes. Well, morality, right? It's another morality test. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you, as, as, as Lone Wolf, you've come in, you don't really know the politics, so you get involved in a battle, and it's not like the good guys all wear white badges. Which I love. I do. Li- yeah. I really like some of that, I, I think, um, for good reason. And we'll talk about this in other podcasts, but I think for good reason with narrative, some of that goes away in later books. But these early books have such a feeling of gray morality, and you don't really know where good and evil lies. Well, right. Until you get into the books where you are directly fighting minions of evil. Right. You just don't you just don't know. And this city, uh, Takaro and the Slovians, they they have done similar things to other cities in the past. So Right. Nobody's really great in the Stormlands. Precisely. The Stormlands are internecine, as as we said before. Uh everything is complicated there. Now we talked about your efforts potentially affecting this battle. What about you taking the lore stone? Does anybody even know it's here? I mean, is this a does this have an effect on the city? Not a direct effect on the city. Um, there are no there are no specific you know, light doesn't come crashing down and the walls don't shatter. Right. I was kind of wondering, right? Because like these lore stones, are, they are really powerful relics, but I'm guessing they're not like they're not like the moonstone. They're not bringing fertility to the land and things. Right. They they are if if there's any direct connection to this, uh, any direct effect from taking the lore stone, it probably has to be how you how you end up stirring up the Dakami. I was going to ask that maybe less people stop disappearing in the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's a it's a net positive in a way. <laughs> the sewers become a much friendlier place after Lone Wolf. Yes, and, and considering that since you've already played through uh, Shadow in the Sand, um, you know that sewers can be really bad. They really need pest control. Yes, they they do. And in a way, Lone Wolf is the ultimate pest control, especially here. Well, we've mentioned the Dakamede now enough times. We better talk about it. So the Dakamede, as far as I understand, this is an ancient Agarashi? It is. It is. They were all given the gift of, of immortality directly by Agarash. Okay. And so these are like the Balrogs of, of Middle-earth in a way. In a way, in a way, they don't they don't really look like them per se, but no, they no, no, are no. they are direct spawn, direct powerful spawn of Agarash itself. Yeah, they look more like uh, almost like lizards with human faces. <laughs> They're pretty weird. In a sense, a lot of Agarashi are reptilian. How did this one get here? It is unknown whether the Dakimine was put here to help guard it, or whether it was attracted in. 
when other Agarashi have tried to infiltrate ruins all throughout the Stormlands. And one interesting thing about this Dakamid is, I, until I met other Dakamid much later in the series, I thought this was the only one because it's, uh, well, one, it's a very memorable encounter. Uh, but two, when, if I should say you defeat it, the passage mentions, you know, you, you use the lore stone to have time catch up with it. And so I, I it almost, it was like, was this a Dakami that would have died prior? Like, why, where did that time thing come in? Effectively, the, the Dakami that is here has been in the light of the lore stone for so long that when you strike the Dakami down, and the way that you do that, of course, is that you hit it in in one section of its skull, uh, which is you hit it in the head. <laughs> yeah, you, you hit it in the head, but very specifically the base of its skull, which is its only weak spot. And even then, it probably wouldn't die. But you weaken it enough, the power of the lore stone causes all of the time suspended from it by uh, Agarash's blessing. That suddenly goes okay. away. Okay. Okay, so let me see if I understand this right. This would be like, so the Dakamid, being a, a, a very vile, evil creature, born of evil, right. could not normally stand the presence of the Lore Stone. Kind of, we've got this holy power that's kind of, it couldn't normally stand. But it was able to kind of um, be shielded from that until you hit it. Right, because at that point, then you suddenly weaken it, almost to the point of death. At that point, the power of Agarashi, the power of Agarash is not enough to save it. All of its suspended time catches up with it, and it just becomes dust. Ah, uh, love it. And and so did Joe uh, write this thinking it would be the only Dakamid at the time? Because it is such a big, phenomenal fight. Or did he always know there was more of these out there? Oh, he, he always knew there were more of them out there. They, they appear several times in his notes, and he, has, he had every intention of later stories using Dakamid. Uh, we'll look forward to that, even if, uh, even if Lone Wolf won't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, the interesting <laughs> thing here is that at this point, because of the fact that Lone Wolf doesn't have a lot of the extended lore that he would normally have at this point in his career, for obvious reasons, uh, he doesn't know that this isn't the only Dakamid. Oh, okay. So he does not rest easy. No, after this. No, book. as as he shouldn't. He has no idea whether this is a unique creature or there are more of them out there. Uh, he's probably at this point worried that every lore stone's going to have one of these enormous things. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> if only, actually, yeah, that would be I mean, fine. That'd be nice. One, some of the later lore stones, <laughs> he'd have happily traded up for a document. <laughs> oh. Above the church, a whirlpool of darkness is taking form, casting a tomb-like chill on everything beneath. Frost crystallizes on the grass and flowers, and a terrible sound fills the air as the earth begins to shake. Cracks appear in the ground beneath you, and suddenly a score of fleshless hands burst through the frozen soil to grab at your horse. Shrieking with terror, it rears up, and you are thrown into the waiting arms of the waking dead. All right, so uh, today our, our, we always try to have a special feature as part of our episodes, and today we're doing one of my favorites, which is In the Margins. So this is where we talk about 
uh, notes from from kind of the behind the scenes creation of this book. Take it away, August. All right. So for this in the margins, I have I have a little bit to tell you about the lore stones themselves. When Joe originally created this, he he mapped them out. He had he had some partial notes about uh, where each was going to be, what what they were going to be defended by. But one of the things that he ended up doing later in the books is, and you know you know this well, is that you don't actually end up hunting down each individual lore stone. I mean, it seems like that when you first get started, but eventually there there comes a point where you where you kind of get a, a bonus bag of lore stones. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is cool because I mean, I think when you when you count of the Magna Chi books, you go, cool, it's good. The gimmick is going to be a lore stone, a book. Yes. And then that starts the shift. Yes. Which which is the yeah, it's the tonal shift. It becomes the storytelling device. So when you first see it, that's what you expect. That's what's going to happen. And that is what he intended when he first did it. But as he was writing the books, the story became so much bigger. He realized. There's no way that I can tell all of the story that I want if I make it one stone per book. And so that's why you end up sort of getting the squish at the end. Mm, got it. Interesting. Okay, because otherwise you would have to go to these very specific areas, and he didn't necessarily want to tell a story about those areas. Well, he absolutely did want to tell a story. That's why he started the, the structure was because he wanted to tell the story of all of these areas and the lore because you know that's what makes the book so rich. But then he realized that he had an abundance of riches and, and there was and there was almost an embarrassment of story and there was just no way he could fit it all into the books. Right. So so the way the reason we have the structure that we have is because he had to go. Oh, crud. How do I truncate this? Do we know which uh which areas we sort of, you know, lost? Uh, I don't want to say lost because we gained so much and the, all the stories are great, but do we do we know which areas were cut? Uh we I have a very bare bones list and they wouldn't make much sense to to detail it out. But but yes, you would have you would have ended up well, one thing uh, you would have almost seen Banar and Chai way earlier than we do in the series. Oh, and for for people who don't know, we don't see those books till literally the Grandmaster or the New Order series. Sorry, that's like books twenty seven, yeah. twenty eight, that area. Yeah, twenty six, twenty seven, and twenty eight are are where we start to get those stories, and we'd we'd have gotten them much sooner. Oh, so you can see why ah. the story had to get truncated because that's way too much for the limited number of books. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Exactly. Uh, as soon as you hit Southern Magnamon, honestly, once you cross the river uh, Tentaria, I think it is Tentarius. Yes, the, once you cross that main river, that's almost like you know an ocean separating the two continents. It's so big. Um, but once you cross that, it's a whole other world in history. It's it's very different. Yes, and in the original in the original plotting out of the lore stones, uh, one of the lore stones would have been south of the river. Got it. Got it. Well, there is one other question I want to ask to see if we have any behind the scenes stuff. Sure, go this right. This actually was I had many fans say because we 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 ask fans to uh, to help us out with some of the questions we ask. If you want to help us out with that too, um, make sure you join the Lone Wolf Facebook group. Because that's where we do this. But what's about to follow is a, is a big spoiler. So if you want to be creeped out without spoilers, jump forward to uh, jump forward about 
30 seconds. Yeah, probably <laughs> a good, good idea. <laughs> yeah. Many fans said they wanted us to talk about Shanda, uh, <laughs> who is probably one of the creepiest characters well, in Lone Wolf I history. Mean, you know, he, <laughs> this, only as creepy as, say, you know, taxiderming dead monsters. If, if I mean, he is to, I think up to this, I think up to right now as we're recording this, I think Shanda may be the only just straight up serial killer in the series. Uh, no. In fact, you actually meet a serial killer in the first book, uh, in book, in book one in Holmgard. Uh, you have, you have the possibility of encountering both a, both a serial killer and his serial killing son. See, right. It's, it's the, uh, the, um, it's like the Dexter. It's like the Dexter of this world. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> T- taking out serial killers one summer sword at a time. Uh, but, okay. But yeah, so no, you, you actually start the story with serial killers. But we don't know anything else. I won't use his name again for those who have jumped forward, but it, it, we don't know anything else from Joe about, about this character. It was just a creepy guy. Uh, yes, specifically in the story, one of the things that Joe felt would make it creepier is if you didn't know and, and you never get any answers. Uh, the character is just creepy and, and you should feel, uh, an absolute squick. Oh yeah. After having gone through the encounter. Oh yeah. Skin crawl. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joe was right. I mean, I think when we look at, you know, the most enduring, mythological sort of uh the, the the serial killers have taken on mythological you know status it's like it's the ones we don't know you know the the um the jack the rippers of the world yeah. and this and this particular this particular character is creepy solely because in a world of of agarashi and dark lords and minions of nar he has no special powers he's not a cultist he has no agenda He's just evil. Well, thank you for joining us today in the journeys through Magnamon. This has been a huge book, one I've I've absolutely been waiting to to get to. It, it certainly has my favorite cover. Uh, of all the U.S. books, uh, we always say we'll do a U.S. we'll do a cover podcast someday. But <laughs> this this cover is awesome. Uh, so, and I, I every time I see it on my shelf, I go, oh, I just it just floods me with memories of this book. Yeah, Kingdoms covers in general, regardless of the printing, tend to be great. Well, and I think it is tied to some of what we talked about. I mean, this is such a good book in terms of growing the world. I, it is. It is that. It's the teenager, right? Uh, it's like we don't forget our the things that we did when we were teenagers. And this is the teenage book. This is when Lone Wolf kind of leaves the nest, yes, and really strikes out and and grows into his own. He's he's going through growing pains here, and they're some of my favorite books. So we know what's coming up. Lone Wolf does not, but but we will uh we will start the 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 rest of the journey next time with Castle Death. Yes, which is such a blunt and wonderful title. So I'm looking forward to that podcast. (laughs) Me too. Well, um, with that, we will say that until then, 
hit a lot of zeros in your combats. <laughs> Let that pencil fall. Learn where they are. <laughs> and until then, for, for Summerland and, and the Kai. Kai. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of fantasy's longest running series. To get the latest news on Lone Wolf and to pick up the definitive editions of the books, which include new sections, updated rules, and additional art, visit magnamund.com. The music you're hearing now is from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, a musical project by Lone Wolf fans Andy and Mark. They are on a quest to create an original song based on each of the Lone Wolf books. You can learn their story and hear more about the project at brotherhood.rocks. That's brotherhood.rocks. And they really do.